0: Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, God, that you are good to us when the sun is shining. You're good to us in the rain, Lord. Thank you that you provide seasons, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you provide times of great rejoicing. Lord, thank you for the times you've you've given to us to remind us of your goodness, your providence, your care for us. Father, I pray this morning that we would see your providence at work. We would see your care at work in the life of Joseph, Lord, but not just in the life of Joseph. I pray that we would see your care at work in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would see that you enable your people to do what you call us to do. Lord, I pray that you would give me grace as I preach and give grace to all the hearers this, this morning. Lord, may they not be too distracted by thinking about Mother's Day plans this afternoon. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you won the lottery, I you've probably dreamt about that at times, winning the lottery. I know I've, I've thought about that. Apparently you have to buy a ticket to win the lottery though, so um, if, if, if you ever won the lottery and you had uh, lots of children, maybe, maybe you have a couple children, but let's pretend you have lots of children, dozens of kids. For a lot of moms, it's a nightmare right now, but imagine that it's a good thing, and you have, you have dozens of children, you won the lottery, you'd want to provide for them. You'd want to do all you could to provide for your children, to care for them. You'd want to do all you could to set them up for success, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd want to maybe buy some of them a home, or buy others a car, or not buy others cars uh, for fear of how they drive. And then others, you might want to set them up for success. Maybe you might send them to a good university, maybe Harvard or Yale or maybe even Clemson or USC, but you probably wouldn't send your kids to Georgia or to Ohio State or Notre Dame or something like that. But um, <laughs> some kids you might sponsor to go to a, a trade school. And, and you, would, you would try to set different kids up for success based on their gifting and personalities and responsibilities, and you'd want to wisely provide and care for your children, wouldn't you? I mean, you want to do that now anyway. But if you had the means to do that, you wouldn't just give every kid the exact same necessarily. You'd want to be thinking, how can we be wise in how we set them up for success? So many children of uh, multimillionaires grow up to be irresponsible. So you're thinking, I don't want them to be irresponsible. I want to be wise. I want to be trained them. I want to prepare them and provide for them wisely. So in, in this case, in Genesis, what we're going to see is God is wisely providing for his children. You see, God, God doesn't need to win the lottery. God uh, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it says. He owns everything. He's the creator of all. All things belong to him. And yet, God doesn't just give the children of Israel everything they need immediately. No, he, he's, he's a wise provider because he cares about what's best for them. He cares about providing wisely for them and setting them up ultimately for his definition, which is the only definition that matters, his definition of success. Look down in your Bibles for a minute, please, in Genesis 45, verse 16. It says, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Joseph had gone from being cast into a pit to being carried off into Egypt. He had been raised to prominence in Potiphar's house. He was overseeing the entire house. Then he was wrongly accused. He was thrown in prison. He languished there for many years. Then God raised him up again, enabled him to interpret dreams of two of his fellow inmates. And then a couple years later after that, he was able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, and God gave Joseph wisdom. The way that God provided for Joseph, it it might have been different than what you would think you would have done. But God was wisely providing and caring for Joseph. And not only that, God's wisely providing and caring for the people of Israel. And in this case, through Pharaoh, through Pharaoh, God provides for his people. And that's, that's really our first point this morning, is that we want to see through the Scripture that God provides for his people. God gave great favor with Pharaoh and all of his servants to Joseph. And, and it didn't just speak to the kind providence of God, but also to the kind of employee and example that Joseph must have been, right? I mean, Joseph must have been a good employee of Pharaoh if ever Pharaoh had such favor on him. He must not only have been wise, but faithful and fair. You don't get respected by Pharaoh and his servants both, unless you're just and a good man. You see, you can get respected by Pharaoh if you, were, if you were harsh and you got things done, but the servants wouldn't like you very much. But obviously, Joseph was walking with integrity, and he's being fair, just, and good, because if you're going to have the respect of both Pharaoh and servants, you have to be faithful, consistent, reliable, and wise. But ultimately, in the end, although there was, Joseph was a man of integrity, it wasn't Joseph who was providing for the family. Although Joseph worked hard and he built up a reputation with Pharaoh, ultimately it was God who was providing for Joseph and it was God who was providing for this family. For the Christian, we don't only pray for the favor and providence of God, we're to walk in a manner that's that's worthy of him, like Joseph was doing. And sometimes, like Joseph, he uses our faithfulness and our character to be the means of his providence. But in any case, Joseph was given great favor by God with the upper class, with the lower class alike. And this was evidence of God's kind providence, and leadership. Look down at verse 17, if you will. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, "'Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to do, say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come.' Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh was clearly in charge. He's commanding Joseph, but what he's commanding him to do is very good. It was extravagantly extravagantly kind as well. You see, God was providing for Joseph through Pharaoh. And at times, God uses all kinds of people to provide for his children. And we shouldn't expect God just to work through one type of person. If God's overall, he works through all things and he works all things together for the good of those who love him, then God's going to use whomever he wishes to bring about his purposes and to provide for his children. So in this case, we see that Pharaoh commands Joseph with compassion and he he cares even for the little ones. He takes attention to detail to care for the children of Israel, the women and his old father. He tells him to load them onto wagons. He doesn't want them to have to walk on such a long journey. He tells him, Use wagons to get here. Bring all that you can. Don't, 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 don't even take all the stuff that you have there. You don't, you don't need to bring that with you. Don't worry about bringing your other things. You're going to have all the best of the land. It would be like today if a Bedouin from a war-torn torn, impoverished country, if he was coming to immigrate to a place like the U.S. and he was, he was invited by Warren Buffett, he, he would probably... Tell the Bedouin, you know, you don't need to bring anything. I've, I've got it taken care of. I've got it covered here. You don't need to bring your old tents and your old broken water pitchers. And so we see that they did. In verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. We can see the results really in Joseph of a fully reconciled relationship. He's, he's lavishly expressing affection and great generosity, not just to his father but to his brothers as well and to their whole families. And in verse 24 it says, He sent his brothers away and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. God was providing for the people of Israel, through Joseph, through Pharaoh. But here's something interesting. In in, in verse 24, and it says, don't quarrel in the way. You see, in in the midst of kindness, in the midst of God's providential care, Joseph was still a wise and faithful leader. He wasn't ignoring the temptations that his brothers would have. He wasn't naive. He knew the people were tempted to jealousy, arguing, complaining, especially at times when we're provided for abundantly. That's the times when we can be tempted Joseph probably rightly assumed they are going to be tempted to blame each other. They probably were thinking, oh no, I don't want to go back to Egypt because how we treated Joseph, he might be angry when we come back. They were tempted to quarrel probably about whether to tell their father the truth about what had really happened to Joseph so many years ago. Maybe we should just fabricate a story and, or just claim we don't know what happened and he disappeared and now he's back and this is great. Maybe they were tempted to quarrel there about, being honest. Whatever the case, it's notable that Joseph tells them not to quarrel along the way after they just received great blessings. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that as well, don't we? And we can be tempted to compare what we've received with what other people have received, and we can allow bitter roots of jealousy to creep in. Sometimes we see what somebody else has given. You know, Benjamin was given five times the amount. Sometimes we compare ourselves to what other people have been given. We can question the goodness of God. We can be tempted to to quarrel, to jealousy. We can be tempted to blame other people, too, for the mess that we're in. We can be tempted not to own up to our own mistakes like the brothers. Whatever the reason, we can be tempted to lash out to the very people who are closest to us, our family. And often that quarreling, it comes from wanting something that we don't have, or maybe wanting more of what we do have. And when we think somebody else doesn't deserve something, we're tempted to quarrel even more. The brothers, they've been changed by God. They've been made into his people, but they're not fully sanctified yet. They're, they're God's chosen nation, but they're not fully completed. They have still had competing desires, and they still struggle with mixed motives, and like all of us do, even after we've still been made a new creation, we still need to guard against wanting our own way, don't we? In the midst of God providing greatly for each and every one of us, we still have to guard against some of these same things, being jealous, not wanting the wrong things. But that kind of quarreling would have been really counterproductive for the brothers on the way to Egypt. It would have been counterproductive if they were going to be the united people who God was calling them to be. Quarreling would have gotten in the way of their mission. would have potentially divided the family. And, and quarreling does the same thing in our own lives. In our own family, it causes division. So Joseph, he wisely warns his brothers, and then we see down in verse twenty-five. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, "Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler of all the land of Egypt." And how does how does Jacob respond? Well, it tells us. It says his heart became numb, for he did not believe them, and when they didn't, he, he did not believe his children because. He probably had so many years of dashed hopes, dashed expectations. How could it be true? How could his son, who had been gone for over 20 years, how could he still be alive? After all this time, as a parent of a missing child, he must have had hopes lifted, only to be dashed. People from faraway lands might have come to him and said, hey, we saw your son, only to find out, no, it wasn't really his son. He had his hopes lifted and dashed over the years to the point that he didn't dare to hope for the best anymore. You ever ever have that happen to you, where you've had your hopes lifted in the dash, lifted in the dash, and you kind of become numb, and you don't you don't dare hope for the best anymore? Jacob he displays a very human reaction. He, He he's just numb. He doesn't believe the truth. The same reaction can happen to other people when they experience hurt or disappointment or dashed hopes, year after year. There's a tendency to get numb and not believe anymore, but we can believe and trust in the kind providence of God. Look in verse 27. It says, When they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. You see, Joseph looked around at all that they had brought to him, And he sees the new clothes, and he sees the wagons, and he sees the provisions, and he says, that's the only thing that can make sense of this. No one else could provide, God must really have preserved my son's life. They could never have afforded those wagons, there's no way that the the sons could have bought those things and brought them back, and so Joseph sees the truth, and his heart is warmed now, and he begins to change when he sees the, the providence of God, and the spirit's revived, and he determines to go and see Joseph before he dies, and In in chapter 46, verse 1, it says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Why did he do that? Why did he stop? Why did he stop after he, he knew that he was to go back to Egypt? All these provisions were there for him. He stopped because he needed to hear from God. He stopped because he needed to seek God's face. He needed to check in with God before he could leave the promised land. Remember the story of of Jacob he spent so many years outside of the promised land he was exiled in effect because of his sins against his brother and his father he spent so many years away from the promised land he was eager to come back and now it seemed as if he was gonna to have to leave the place that God had told him and his grandfather and his father to live in it's a place where God had promised to bless him and make him to a great nation the question must have gone through his head would God bless him now If he was going to Egypt, leaving the promised land, leaving the place of security and surety and safety, could God still make him a great nation in Egypt? He also probably remembered the terrible nightmare that his grandfather Abraham had. He'd been passed down from Abraham to his own father. Let's look back in Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain... That your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That prospect must not have been tempting to Jacob. Jacob's not thinking, oh great, I want to go to Egypt in a foreign land where we can all be servants for 400 years, be afflicted. In verse 14 of Genesis 15, he was telling Abram, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Jacob had to have great faith to leave the place of promise, to leave the place that seemed safe and secure, the place that seemed best to him. He would have had great faith in God. He probably understood Egypt would be the last place he would ever live, especially if he had to be there another five years to wait out the famine. And he probably figured out that God was beginning to fulfill this this dream that he gave to Abram. And the question of whether or not Jacob could really do this, whether or not he really should go, it must have crossed his mind. God was calling him out into an unknown land, into an unknown place, into a place that didn't seem best for him in his own eyes. Sometimes God calls us out as well. You know, God puts us in a place of protection at times and safety, and and it seems like the best place for us. But then other times, like Jacob, God calls us to the land that seems dangerous, that doesn't seem safe, that seems unknown, that seems unsure to us. And like Jacob, we need to trust God. But we don't have blind trust. We have trust in God's character, His nature, and who He is. Look down in in verse 2 of chapter 46. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You see, God was calling him to an unfamiliar place, God was calling him out of the safe place and into Egypt, into an unknown land, into uncertain things. But he wasn't calling him blindly. He was calling him based on his character. He was calling him based on his promises and on his faithfulness. He was calling his chosen people to follow him into Egypt. And, and God calls his people to follow him. He doesn't give us all the details. He didn't give Jacob all the details. He doesn't give all, all the details to us in our lives either. But he does... He does give us his word he does give us his promises he does tell us of his nature and his character and then he calls his people to follow him we don't just see that here in in scripture we see that throughout the old testament new testament alike when genesis god calls noah he gives him some instructions and then noah spends a long time building that ark he has to trust in god's word he has to trust in god's calling Then God calls Abram to go into a land that he didn't know, an unfamiliar place, to leave his family, to go into hostile territory. He gave him some instructions. He called Abram to follow him, but he didn't give him all the details. God calls Jacob to Egypt. Thousands of years after Israel or Jacob, God sent his son to the earth, and Jesus called his disciples. He says, come, follow me. He didn't give them all the details. He didn't tell them what their life was going to be like for the next three years or for the next 50 years or 60 years. He says, come follow me. He told them who he was. He taught them his his word. He told them of his character and his nature. And God's people follow him. For us, we've been given God's word. We've been given his character, his nature, and God's call to each and every one of us. Jesus didn't just call to his early disciples. Jesus calls to each and every one of us, come and follow me. But in this Christian life, he doesn't give us all the details. He doesn't spell things out in particulars. He doesn't tell you exactly how everything's going to work out. And at times it can seem uncertain. At times it can seem daunting. And at times you can feel like, I'm going to Egypt. What in the world does God have prepared for me? This destination unknown, we're called to follow him and trust in him. And this revelation from God to Jacob, it wasn't just meant for Jacob, it was meant for us as well. You see, Jacob's descendants for the next 400 years would have to hang on to this raw word. This word to their forefather for 400 years. We at times feel like we're hanging on for years to the words of the Lord. And yet, we know that God's word is faithful and true we can hang on to his words, even though that we aren't sojourners in a physical Egypt. We are indeed sojourners and pilgrims in this earthly world, aren't we? Israel knew Egypt was not his final destination. He must have wondered, why in the world does our family have to be in Egypt for 400 years? God, do you really know what you're doing? Are you, you're, you're kidding, really? 400 years, but you... But isn't this the promised land? How can it be good to leave for that long? And in 400 years, there's no way that the Canaanites are going to remember who I am and who my family is. There's no way that we'll have a place. It's going to be harder to establish a place. God, does that make any sense at all? Those kinds of questions fill our head at times when God calls us to do things and we can't figure it out. It doesn't seem, well, God, I have something good already. Why why do you seem to remove me from this, what I feel like is a good circumstance, a good situation? You see, Egypt represented all that was antithetical to the land that he had been called to. It was completely foreign, completely pagan. It was a very decadent nation. They didn't know God there. They weren't interested in God either. We find ourselves in in similar circumstances in a pagan, decadent nation. People who don't know God. And at times are not interested either. But, But Jacob knew. Jacob knew that even though he'd likely die in Egypt, God said Joseph would close his eyes. He knew that it wasn't his family's true promised land. He knew it wasn't the place where the people of Israel ultimately belonged. If you're you're a Christian this morning, if you've placed your faith in in Jesus Christ, this, this world is not your final destination. We're in Egypt now, if you will. We're being prepared for our Final home, our ultimate place. God's prepared to land for us, and it's not the current area of Palestine. <laughs> That's good news for me. I've been there. It's 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 pretty, but there's a lot of things I don't like about it. It's hot. It's dry. A lot of other things. <laughs> Je- Jacob had a longing to be in the place where God wanted him. Don't you want to be in the place where God wants you to be? Jacob wanted to be home. He wanted to be in the place where his family would grow and become great. And he he must have thought, it's the promised land. But God said, no. The place I want you to grow and become great, it's Egypt. Don't we all have that longing as well? Don't we want to be home? Don't we want to find a place of rest and peace? There's this natural longing that God's put in all of our hearts that we want to satisfy. and Jacob probably wanted to make a lasting home for generation after generation. The idea of going to foreign land, not seeing the fulfillment of that promise in his own lifetime, has been daunting, disconcerting, and disappointing. You ever felt like that? God, I don't see how this could happen in the rest of my life. It can seem daunting, but then God speaks some beautiful, reassuring words to him in his dream. God speaks to him, and he calls him by name. And he says his name twice, and it's, I'm reminded of the story when, when Jesus, Jesus gets Martha's attention. He says, Martha, Martha. He says, Jacob, J- Jacob, you're, you're worrying and fretting, about when he's get done, you're not seeing the most important thing, just like Martha was worrying about those things and not seeing the most important thing was to be with Jesus, and God says, Jacob, Jacob, I'm going to be with you. That's, that's the most important thing. The most important thing is that I will be with you. Not your circumstances, not your situation. Life had not turned out as Jacob had thought. He ran from the promised land in fear as a young man defrauded his brother. He spent so many years away from this promised promised land. He labored so hard to get back. And after he finally gotten back and his family was doing great, he thought, now he's being removed from that. He'd been tricked and deceived in his life. Things hadn't worked out like he thought they would. He couldn't have predicted how his life turned out. and, And yet, God speaks to him and calls him by name. It seems, though, as if he wouldn't have the promised land that God had told him about back in Genesis 35 when he says, this is the land I'm going to have for you and the offspring after you. And then he doesn't just call his name. He speaks... Words of hope to him. These words are for us today as well. And he says, I am God, the God of your father. Jacob could trust God. God knew Jacob. God was the same God who had been faithful to his father, Isaac. He was the same God who had been faithful to Abram. And God was telling him when he sang, I'm the God of your father. He was saying, I'm the same God who's always been faithful I'm the same God who's always provided for your family. I'm the same God who's always cared for you generation after generation. I'm the same God who's called you and kept you and preserved you. And then he tells Jacob to not be afraid. God calls all His people to not be afraid. God tells his people to not be afraid. God gave Jacob some good reasons to not be afraid though, didn't he? In, in verse 3 of verse forty, uh, chapter 46, look down in your Bibles for a moment. He says, Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God told Jacob not to be afraid. Why? Because God would make him into who he needed to be. God would be the one who would make him into a great nation. Jacob didn't need to worry about going into an unknown land about leaving all that he had behind. He didn't, he didn't need to worry about leaving those things that were most dear to him because God would make him in who, into who he needed to be. God would make him into a great nation, even if he never saw it happen in his lifetime, and he wouldn't. Often, God's at work in us and through us. And, and for some of us, we might not understand We might not see all that God is doing in our own lifetime. We don't really like that, do we? (laughs) I don't like the idea that we might not see what God's doing in and through us in our own lifetime. I'm sure Jacob didn't like that either, but look and see what God has done through Jacob and through his offspring. That's the kind of God we serve. We serve God who's who's interested in the long haul, in 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 the big picture. God is in things for the long haul. We can trust him. And we cannot be afraid. Even if what he's promised doesn't come to fruition for us, we don't know what God might be up to in our own families and in our, in our spouses and our children and our grandchildren and our children's children 400 years from now. But we can trust God. We cannot be afraid because God is faithful. We can follow God and obey God even when immediate fruit doesn't seem to come. An immediate fruit at times won't seem to come in your life. You won't see the fruit for many years. But Jacob had faith in God. He had faith in the unseen. You see, ultimately, this life, is not, it's not about us, ultimately. We, like, we don't like to hear that because we like this life to be all about us. It's not all about us. It's about God working in and through us to accomplish his purposes, even when it seems slow to us. Sometimes it seems slow, doesn't it? Jacob had faith in the unseen. We can have faith in the unseen. We can can leave a, a legacy for our descendants of faith in God. And God tells him a second thing in this verse. He says that he himself will go down with him to Egypt. In our place of Egypt, God promises to go with us as well. That's remarkable language. You see, the God of the universe, the creator of all, promises to be with us. He promises to be with us when we go into Egypt, into unknown lands. It's the same kind of language that we saw in the garden when God himself walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Isn't that a beautiful promise? He says, I myself will go with you. I'll be with you. I'll walk there with you. And That's the same kind of promise he gives to each and every one here here is place their faith in Jesus. He says, I will go with you. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you. I'll walk together with you. My very presence will be with Jacob in Egypt, is what he's saying. What more secure promise could we want than God himself? All else will fail, but God will never fail. Circumstances, they're going to be too much for us at times, but they're never too much for God who is faithful. No one can hold back God's arm. No one can resist his plans. I love in Jeremiah 27, 5. God is telling Jeremiah to go and speak to King Zedekiah. And he was telling him to submit to King Nebuchadnezzar. He was telling the king of Judah to submit to a foreign ruler. And God was explaining why. God was explaining why. He says, it's I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever seems right to me. What God was doing then and what God was doing in Jacob is God was saying, I'm able to provide. I'm able to do whatever I want through whomever I want, whether it's through Pharaoh or through Nebuchadnezzar or through that horrible boss that you have or through somebody else that you don't feel like you can submit to. We can trust that God is powerful. He's able. We don't have to be afraid. And then lastly, God t- tells Jacob a third reason why he doesn't need to be afraid. He says, He says, I will bring you up again. Jacob, Jacob knew he was going to die in Egypt. God just told him, I'm going to, you're going to die? Jake, Joseph's eye, hand is going to close your eyes. You're going to die there. But at the same time, he says, I'll bring you up again. Listen, if you're a Christian, God promises that one day he'll bring you up again, even though you die. Even though you might die here on this earth, one day he's going to lead us to our home country, the country that we have never seen before. The place we've been longing for our entire lives. You see, this world is meant to create in us a longing for heaven. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis, he writes about it in the Chronicles of Narnia in in the book The Last Battle. He says, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been longing for all my life, though I never knew it till now. This land, this country, this earth is not our final destination place. God will bring us up again. Once since Egypt wasn't where Jacob ultimately belonged, even though it was right where he needed to be. You know, in the same way, this world, the circumstances you find yourselves in, they're, they're not where you belong ultimately, but God has you right where he wants you to be. You may not understand why, why you're living in Egypt. God, why am I living in Egypt? The place that God has for us, he'll ultimately bring us to. The place that we long for the most, he'll bring us up God used Egypt, though, to mature, to strengthen, to prepare his people, to make them into a great and mighty nation. And sometimes, in a similar way, God uses our own Egypt, our own circumstances to to strengthen us, to cause us to grow, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. We shouldn't despise that. You've been given good reasons to not be afraid when God calls you. God calls you. God calls you to not be afraid, and you will be given good reasons for that. God will be with you. God calls you by name, and he'll bring you up again. He'll make you into who you need to be, and he'll bring you up again. And, and then we see that Jacob, he's faithfully obedient in response. And God leaves Jacob through the famine, and through Pharaoh, and through providence, through his word. And then God calls Jacob, though, ultimately to respond in faith and to obey. We see in the next account that Jacob sets out with all of his sons and the family and the livestock and the goods in tow. And we can see in... In verse 5 of chapter 46, all the way to, the, to verse 12 of chapter 47, that God honors Jacob and Joseph and his family's faithful obedience. And there's a principle that we can draw from this. And that principle is that God honors faithful obedience. God honors faithful obedience. Look down at verse 5. It says, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel, carried Jacob their father, the little ones, their wives, their wagons, the Pharaoh sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained the land of Canaan that came to Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons with sons with him, his daughters and his son's daughters and all his offspring. And Time doesn't permit, we're not going to read through all of the, the genealogy, the different names, but these names are given to show us that they were completely obedient. And he gives us these names as well to show us they were a small group when they went into Egypt, and 400 years later, God would use it to grow them. God would use Egypt to grow them 400 years later, was Perhaps millions of people that came out. They weren't a nation yet, but God would use Egypt to grow them. The point is to show that they, they faithfully obeyed God and God honored their faithful obedience. And we see an incredible reunion as well. God honored Jacob's faithful obedience by reuniting him with his son. Look down in verse 29. It says, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. What a beautiful scene that is. Could you imagine 20 years of longing? 20 years of separation and God's reuniting. Israel is, this isn't a dejected phrase in verse 30. He's God's restored him. God's been faithful to honor his obedience. And so Israel says, now let me die. <laughs> I don't need anything else. I don't need anything else before I die. He says, since I've seen your face and I know you're still alive, I'm good. I'm good. Then the last verses of chapter 46, Joseph, he gives his brothers instructions about how to speak with Pharaoh. He tells them to tell Pharaoh their shepherds because the Egyptians hated shepherds says they were abominable to the Egyptians. He knew that Pharaoh would make sure they settled in a good land, but a good land apart from the Egyptian, a land that was good for raising animals, but that would keep them safe. You see, God was, God was honoring their faithful obedience, but he also was calling them as they obeyed to act wisely, and Joseph acted wisely. Obedience does not mean that we're foolish in the way that we live and obey God. God didn't give him all the details about how to live and what to say. God didn't tell Joseph specifically. He expected Joseph to act wisely, and then he gave Joseph the wisdom to carry it out on his own. God, God doesn't tell us exactly in detail how we're supposed to obey him. You know, okay, go to work at 5.30 and then leave at this time. No, but we're, we're to act wisely. We're to act wisely as we obey him. And God has given us brains and he expects us to use them in a wise and prudent manner as we obey him. He expects us to act prudently with our bosses like Jacob Joseph was acting prudently with Pharaoh, and he expects us to act prudently with our teachers and those over us as we carry out his commands and obey him. Doesn't mean that we can just do as we want when we're obeying God. We we have to act in a wise and prudent manner. And so they do that in this story. They go to Pharaoh, they tell him they're shepherds, and Pharaoh gives them prime grazing lands where the Egyptians would not have liked to live, but Goshen was really the choice land. So skip down with me to verse 5 of chapter 7. It says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, if your father and your brothers have come to you, the land of Egypt's before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Settle them. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Pharaoh doesn't just give them the best of the land, he also gives them paying jobs. That's a practical necessity for them. God was... God was being faithful to their obedience. He gives them paying jobs. They would have needed income when they first got there and God provides that for them. Give them jobs that would sustain them and pay for their rent, so to speak. They took jobs working for the man so they could have money to grow their own flock. And you know, guys, sometimes you need to work for the man in order to provide for your family. Even if it doesn't seem glorious, you may just need to work hard and you might need to get a job, to provide for your own flock. Well, it's not the point of this, but we can see that faithful obedience sometimes looks like just getting a job, <laughs> just working hard, being a shepherd. And then God honors this family's faithful obedience. God would use Egypt to shelter them. He'd use them, he'd use them being secluded to keep them from being defiled. You see, in Canaan, they were already starting to intermarry. And in that genealogy I told you about, it lists the fact that they married Canaanite women and and here, if the Egyptians found them abominable, they're, they're, they're going to be less likely to intermarry. And so God's going to actually use them coming out of Canaan to keep them pure and to preserve them and protect them from being defiled. And he's going to use Egypt to care for them, cause them to grow and to teach them. Look down at verses 7 through 10, if you will. It says, we see in these verses that, that Joseph, he's bringing his dad before Pharaoh. You, you, ever, you ever introduced your, your boss or Somebody who you respect and you look up to, to your, to your parents, and you're thinking, oh man, I just hope dad doesn't say anything dumb. <laughs> if you haven't, then God bless you, but uh, you're, it's a rare thing. <laughs> well, Joseph, I mean, he, he must have wondered, what in the world's my dad going to say? He's 130, he doesn't really care about what anybody else thinks now. He <laughs> just kind of speaks to his mind. But thankfully, I'm thinking, he's, Jacob's like, whew, okay, he didn't embarrass me. He was actually he said something good. He was humble, and he blesses Pharaoh, and Then he goes out from Pharaoh's presence. And in the final two verses of the text this morning, verses 11 and 12, it, it says, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded, And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. You see, God was honoring their faithful obedience. And throughout all the verses that we've covered this morning, there's there's a main idea that really holds them all together. One main point that I believe that that God has for us today, and it's, it's that God enables His people to do what He calls them to do. God enables His people to do What he calls them to do. God may be calling you to hard situation. He may be calling you to Egypt. But he's going to enable you. He speaks words of peace to you. He calls you by name. He comforts you and says you don't need to be afraid. And then he enables you. He provides for you and he'll honor your faithful obedience as well. God will enable his people to do what he calls them to do. He's promised to bring us into the land That you've always longed for. It may not be here in Egypt, but he will bring you up again. If you're not a Christian yet, if you're unsure if you're a Christian, you can respond to him. God is calling your voice. I'm calling you you by name, sorry, as he calls your, he's calling each of us by name. He calls us to stop focusing on being so busy with so many things. To stop being distracted by all that we have to do and to come to him. Stop worrying about this life and trying to make your own destiny. He's calling you by name. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to speak words of peace and comfort to you. He tells you don't be afraid to leave everything you've known. Don't be afraid to leave everything you're holding on to. Don't be afraid to leave all that you find comfort in now. Repent. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn to him. And you'll never have to fear again. If you're a child of God, you never have to be afraid. Why? Because God will be with you. God will be with you in Egypt. He'll enable you to do what He's called you to do. Doesn't mean life's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to figure everything out. Doesn't even mean that everything's going to make sense to you. You're going to understand why He's called you to follow Him to Egypt doesn't seem good or right to leave the promised land or this land that I think is my promised land, but ultimately it's not. After all, isn't this, isn't this earthly promised land good? I, it seems like, shouldn't I try to build my own kingdom here? Shouldn't I try to, to gather my family around and have this perfect life? Shouldn't I, doesn't that seem right and good to have what I feel is my utmost happiness here on earth? Isn't it a good thing to be healthy and have riches and nice things and good food to eat? I, I like lobster and filet They can't be bad, can they? But following God is better. He's going to provide for you. He's going to enable you. He's going to honor your faithful obedience. Each and every one of us, whether we know it or not, we have a longing for something to satisfy us. And we can be tempted to try to be satisfied with the things here on earth but nothing nothing here will truly satisfy us no relationship no comforts no food no drink no home no country no perfect political system <laughs> what we truly long for is to be with him and in this life we can have that in a manner even even though we have it as if in a mirror but one day, for all who've placed your trust in him, we will see him face to face. One day, even though our eyes may be closed in Egypt, one day he's going to bring us up again. One day, I'm going I'm to share that quote again with you. We'll say, like that the unicorn did. One day we'll say together, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is a land I've been longing for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia earth is that it sometimes looked a little like this. But don't mistake, don't mistake this for our final place, for the promised land. Come further up. Come further in. That's what God says to each and every one of us. He, he promises to be with us. He'll enable us to do what he called us to do. And though our eyes might close in, in death in Egypt, he says, come further up, come further in. I'll bring you up again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the example of your faithfulness Thank you for how you have enabled your people to do what you've you've called us to do. Thank you that you'll enable each and every person here to, to whatever it is that you've called them to, although it may look different for each and every person here, because you are wisely providing and caring for each and every one of your children based on how you've made us and our gifts uniquely. But you're wisely providing for each of us and wisely enabling each and every one of us to be to be able to do what you've called us to do. Father, I pray that you would give us faith and trust in you. May we not be afraid of the future holds. May we not be afraid of Egypt because you were with us. In your name we pray, amen.